Hello everybody, welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast, volume 10, issue 467. And today we're going to be talking about Trinity. I think there are also a couple of other games called Trinity that have been released since 1986. I think one came up on Steam that's some kind of multiplayer shenanigan. But to be clear, we're talking about Infocom's Trinity, which is a text adventure from 1986. Joining me, Leon Cox, in this issue are Jesse Fuchs. Hello. John Salmon. Hi. And from the Computer Game Show, it's Sean Bell. Hello. Welcome back. Trinity then, yes, as I say. Well, we'll give you a spoiler warning. I know this game is very, very old, 35 years old. However, if you are inspired to play it by this show, it's a, it's a story. It's an interactive fiction, so we can spoil it, and we will. This is your spoiler warning. But it is a 1986 text only. There are no graphics sci-fi adventure that's putting it simply from celebrated american adventure studio infocom more details to follow let's start with our histories with the game and also text adventures in general and obviously we have to start this time because it's his pick for volume 10 with jesse uh yeah this is a game that i played when i was about when it came out in 1986 maybe 1987 and my History of Text Adventures was that my father, I think I might mention this in the Amiga episode, my father in 1982 got the uh, Sanyo 555, I think, right. which was not a PC clone, uh, but an MS-DOS computer, right? Which are kind of two slight, slightly different things. Mm-hmm. It couldn't run like Lotus 123 and Flight Simulator or really any games whatsoever. Right. Uh, also has the distinction of being the only uh, machine, uh, third-party machine slower than the original IBM PC. Uh, and it, um, so the only games available for it were really Infocom games because Infocom, uh, put out these text adventures and one big advantage of them being text adventures for them was they could basically build an interpreter that they could kind of spit them onto any system. Uh, you know, once they had the interpreter, they could put all the games on pretty obscure, the deck rainbow, right. Or vanilla MS DOS or the Commodore 128 or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so when I when my father got this, obviously want to play games on his new computer. Um, and and that's what, what was available. So we got Planetfall. Uh, I remember getting it from a, a, a table at a like yeah, an MS DOS users group thing. Uh, we bought it there and uh, definitely one of my fondest memories of like playing games with my dad because we we played that entire game. It's still one of my favorites. It's by Steve Moretzky, who did the Hitchhikers game uh, with Douglas Adams. It's you're exploring an abandoned space. I won't go into details, but it's still a very strong, very good game. Was tempted to have that be the pick. Uh, but um, but yeah, and and then I played even. Uh, it was it was funny. I was thinking I did get the Atari 800 that we've talked about a year or two later, but even then the Infocom games were very much a DOS computer game to me, even though yeah. you could get them on the Atari. If you had a disk but, drive, you could, but well, not right. if you had there's, a tape player like I did. <laughs> but but even so, like the 40-column screen and the big white text on a yeah. like it just would have been a, a very different experience, which is, True. I think, worth, worth pointing out because, right, they were so multi-platform, but it did play out differently. And mm. so they're very associated with like an Amber monitor, you know, on a old DOS machine. Hmm. Uh, they, uh, which, which had enough, you know, a 256 K, which was perfectly fine. So it could, uh, cache so that there wasn't the annoying second or two pause when you're walking around. But when you found something new, 
it would have to load from disk for a few seconds. And that is still like one of the most exciting things I've ever experienced in a video game. It's just like, you know, you you finally type in the thing after days of trying to figure something out and you just hear that ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk and you're just like, all right, we're going to see a new paragraph. Uh, And yeah, I played a bunch of these, finished some of them and I thought this was one I did, but I don't think it is. Uh, <laughs> uh, you think you'd remember if you'd done completed I think this I would legitimately? <laughs> because I really remember the hub world very clearly, and I do not remember the end sequence really at all. Uh, and we'll go in, but yeah, and there are definitely things I do not think I ever figured out that you could stop time, not to go into the game itself. But so, so I do remember just waiting endlessly at a mushroom, and eventually, the 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 door will open if you just hit Z enough times. Uh, and that is a big part of my memory of playing this game is is never understanding really quite how that system worked. Uh, but yeah, I um, and yeah, I really we'll we'll talk about it more. But right, I, I teach that class on '80s games, so I talk about text adventures for a week and Infocom. Yes. I I do maybe love Infocom more than I love Infocom games. I will say I like the games a lot, you know, and a lot of them are really interesting. But just as a company and as kind of a cultural force. Uh, they're they're a fascinating story. They're very interesting people, you know, very kind of coherent kind of rise and fall story that you can teach to a class. So mm. I, have, I have great affection for them just kind of as a subject. And and people who love these games tend to write enormous amounts about them. So, they sure do. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, right. One thing to say is I don't, not to get into what I think of this game, I don't necessarily think this game is an aesthetically superior object to, say, Space Taxi, but... <laughs> the kind of people who love this game will write beautiful nine-part essays about right. it. Yeah. And the people who mm. love Space Taxi will have a beer and play more Space Taxi, right? <laughs> like there is just a, when I put together research materials, there's just a wide, you know, these Infocom yeah. games are the most written about, and they're very important and they're very good, but disproportionately written about, I would okay. say. Well, this is one of the reasons I, I wanted to talk about uh, Infocom, or this Infocom game in particular with you, and uh, and, and actually... Yeah, we've we knew it would be in some ways making a rod for our own backs, including a, a, a an ancient text adventure in this volume. But, uh, but there are reasons, many good reasons. Sean, what are you doing here? <laughs> um, I, I was I was also wondering that to be honest. Um, I mean, Jesse asked me, asked me is the the short answer. A, yeah. Um, <laughs> I thought you'd be interested. Um, like me, you thought you'd steal a bit of education for free. Well, yeah. Um, plus, obviously, it's just intriguing. Like I know, obviously, Kane and Rince as a show doesn't necessarily worry about covering you know new stuff. But when you get asked no. to do a Kane and Rince episode on a game from 1986, you sort of think, well, it's probably worth talking about for one reason or another. So I was intrigued. Um, I mean, in terms of, so obviously, you know, yeah, this came out in 86. I was only born in 85. So, um, I mean, we did have a Commodore 64 when I was about four or five years old. And definitely, you know, we had text adventures for it, but I wanted to... Your reading age wasn't quite that. Exactly. Yeah, I was was into, you know, Jeff Minter and Martin Walker and stuff. So (laughs) um, this stuff was sort of beyond me. Obviously, um, you know, now that I am older, I, you know, I enjoy... Um, you know, the work of Inkle, for example, um, I was a big fan of 80 Days, stuff like that. Yeah. So, you know, and, and obviously, you know, sort of, uh, sort of, I guess, mid to late teens getting into sort of point and click adventures, which is obviously a slightly different kettle of fish, but there's a, there's a lineage there. Um, so yeah, I, I was intrigued. Um, yeah. And I'm, I think it's going to be an interesting discussion one way or the other. <laughs> and uh, I mean, uh, and absolutely no, like I'm, I'm not going to, uh, 
any uh so what's the word i can't think of the right phrase but yeah essentially i haven't completed this game legitimately oh no absolutely uh, no, no, yeah, no. No. i'm so uh, glad you said it first because was- <laughs> yeah I, that's what I, I, that's what i'm that's what i'm getting at don't worry uh, no. i know that's the normal way of doing things but mm-hmm. uh to give an example for listeners who aren't familiar with this form of ele- interactive electronic entertainment jesse you said you have a friend who is currently playing an Infocom game, Oh Naturel, without using guides and yes. resources. And uh, Hitchhiker's ha- Guide. Hitchhiker's Guide. So the, the one the- to do it with, certainly, uh, since 1991. Yeah. Uh, he was stuck on the Babblefish for eight years. Yes. Uh, he <laughs> there is you now go. about two thirds of the way through the game. He's at the New Year's Eve party uh, after four years of being with the ravenous Bug the Ladder Beast, I think. So he's. I'm no professional actuary, but I give him a pretty good shot. That's not bad. But yes, to give an example, obviously, we try to, uh, we we do 50 of these shows a year. So completing one of these every 30 years isn't, you know, isn't going to cut it as regards to getting the show out there. But I felt it was more important to actually do the show, as Jesse suggested, and, and get have this discussion without, yeah, we, we weren't going to put, put any of our crew through actual torture however john because john is john Mm. and uh he's a very uh committed and dedicated (laughs) member of the team he's probably come the closest i think out of any of us to trying to trinity Ooh, i don't know that i'd say that i was more dedicated or tried harder than jesse would have done on this well no okay jesse jesse's i'm taking jesse for granted because it's his (laughs) it's his show we tried to try. Like, we gave it an <laughs> honest shot. Well, yes. in the th- I mean, we'll yeah. get into clues, but that's such an important... I wouldn't... I don't think I would have suggested one of these games if clues didn't exist. Right. Mm. Yeah. Well, if it's just a case of literally just loading up a walkthrough and following a walkthrough, then, you know, anybody can do this and that. It, although it's not completely without its merits, because I think that the the things about this that I enjoyed the most were the way that the prose is written um, yeah. and the way that the, it's really weird to say world building in a game like this, which is literally text on a, on a black screen. Yeah. Um, but the, the oh, way absolutely. that things are described is really evocative and is something that I enjoyed. So playing through it entirely, just following a walkthrough would I guess would be a little bit just like reading a short story or something rather than actually playing a game. So there's, there's not entirely no merit to that, but I mean, I think, the first thing I want to point out is that I set a reminder on my phone at the beginning of April reminding me, hey, go and text um, that text Jesse and ask him what the best way to enjoy this game properly without just completely scumming your way through it is. Giving, thinking that giving myself a month to kind of dabble with it and mess about with it would would really realistically be enough when, as you point out, maybe 30 years would have been a more realistic timeline. But yeah. I mean... You know who who amongst us really even pretends that we'll still be alive in thirty years from now. So I'm hoping to be, but it's no. There's no guarantee for sure. <laughs> it's not in a mood. I, mean, I will, it's, I will it's be nearly eighty. But you have been making maps, and you you yeah. you gave it a good old crack. Yeah. doing it the, the 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 purest way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really wanted to uh, to try and sink into this as much as possible because I mean my my specific. Uh, history with Trinity only goes back for a few weeks, but there's mm. something in the back of my head about text adventures that has always been like a lure for me that has, it, it's almost like this thing that got away, something that I, I have very fond emotions for, but don't remember it enough to really be able to source any of that properly. And the mm. only thing that is really sort of solid is that I know when I was 
quite young at school and at friends' houses, there were various text adventures installed on computers. And I've got a few sort of mental, uh, you know, snapshot images of mm. certain screens, certain graphical things. I very distinctly remember a game that I don't know why I remember that it was an Adrian Mole game. Um, but I remember yeah, level nines. Yeah. 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 You mentioned this a few weeks ago and I thought, mm. oh, I've, I've actually spent ages trying to discover where that game came from over the years, like looking through lists of games that were on BBC Micros to try and find Adrian Mole games and never found any of them because that's where I assume I played it because I know that we had BBC Micros at school when I was about six or seven, but I could never find it. And I just, I've got this snapshot in my head of a joke screen of like a refrigerator with a picture of a stick man upside down and a little caption that said like an Australian man or something like that. And I thought it was an Adrian Mole game, but I just couldn't remember anything. So there's this almost like this lost memory that I've got in my head of trying to figure out what these text adventures that I might have played at one point were. So when it was mentioned that um, Jesse was very keen to do one, I thought, oh, this is this is a really good time for me to actually sink in. And I've, I've never really gone back over the years and tried to play any of them, but uh, it sounded really intriguing. And Jesse saying that this was one of the best ones to to dip into it seemed seemed like a you know a really hearty good recommendation for it so yeah we started messing about mm, three weeks ago four weeks ago and yeah i've been talking to jesse with um you know through dms and stuff and sort of he's been sending me um more resources and articles about some of the other games as i sort of thought i vaguely remembered and i mean it's it's a tricky game to play but with all of the availability now of having you know, a million articles and the internet and everything at your fingertips and literally being able to send a, a text message to somebody who's, you know, a teacher in this field. Yeah, right. it's, 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 a, it's a good yeah. way to try and sink into it. So I'll say I saw my opportunity and I took it and I'm not disappointed. Awesome. Yeah, my history with Infocom is really that I remember reading a lot of reviews of Infocom games as a kid. Uh 13 14 15 years old but i didn't have a disc drive so i couldn't play them i had my atari with a tape deck never could afford disc drive uh, i think i think most of them were released over here in the uk but uh, some of them possibly were even import only i'm not sure but yeah i remember reading reviews of of ballyhoo and things like this and and being quite uh, taken by the the sort of the quality of the writing just from screenshots and and what the reviewers were saying but of course at the same time we also had a number of English or British studios who were releasing very well-regarded text adventures at the same time, such as Level 9 and Magnetic Scrolls later on. And again, I fell foul, really, of not having a disk drive until the Amiga era. Uh, but by then, I felt like, yeah, obviously this genre, for those who aren't familiar with the text adventure, did sort of metamorphose into point-and-click adventures and visual novels and things like this. I was something of a reader as a child, Not certainly wasn't anti-book, uh, and I'm still not, but I've still I've always been much more of a gamer than a, than a reader. And I think I found the white text on black far more, pulled me in far more than the black text on white of, uh, of paper. Uh, and the fact that you could influence seemingly what was going on and choose your own adventure in the style of those famous uh, Peter Jackson, Ian Livingston books, but without having to flick the pages and rub out the pencil marks and all that kind of thing uh, it was exciting i have fond memories of playing some some text adventures like uh, level nine's 
uh, Worm in Paradise particularly. It was I never solved it, of course, but it was it was so it was like it felt like I was involved in a proper sci-fi book. The one I remember the most fondly is the one I did complete, which was a, a later level nine game called Scape Ghost, where you played the the ghost of a of a recently deceased policeman. And uh, it was a sort of comedy noirish horror adventure, uh, which I which I loved. And there were there were plenty of others like this was a, a genre that was well populated because it was easy for little budget labels to put out a quick text adventure. I remember playing one it was like a one ninety nine or two ninety nine game. I think it was called Cloak and Dagger, possibly, uh, or what was it called House of Something? Anyway, uh, it was it, yeah, it wasn't very good, but uh, you know, it's still. It still intrigued me in the way that games did. As regards to this, yes, uh, I'm not going to stake any claim to have completed this properly. I'm here as the host and the presenter. Uh, I have played through the game, but with an enormous amount of help uh, and resources. And uh, and yeah, I've read it. That's the main thing, I think. (laughs) Uh, But I didn't go through the pain of trying to uh, to beat it properly. Yeah, Infocom, the developer, uh, set up in the very early 80s. No, 79, actually. Massachusetts Institute of Technology, uh, ex-alumni from there. Jesse, I'm going to go to you a lot in this show. No problem. Uh, Infocom, uh, developer and publisher of of a a number of games over a period of uh, 10 years, 79 to 89. Yeah, yeah, they they have... Um, basically it's a bunch of MIT guys play Colossal Cave. They really like it and they have a big mainframe and they start making a game called Zork over the next few years where they basically just kind of fill up the mainframe, which, which has a megabyte of memory. So, which is absolutely enormous of that. Yes. Right. So the original Zork is, is relatively humongous. Right. Mm. And then they want to start, uh, not a game company that, that, which is one reason it's called Infocom is it's the most generic name ever. You know, they're going to do some sort of software. Uh, but they think that, well, we made this thing. We could chop off basically a chunk of it, fit it on a microcomputer. Very interesting task, right? They're very, very proud of, they had worked with AI type stuff along the lines of, you know, uh, a computer knows to like put the blue box inside the red cylinder on top of the thing kind of AI, right? And so their parser, uh, they were very proud of being sort of an offshoot of that and being able to understand more than the uh, two word stuff that Colossal Cave and all the other games were doing. Uh, so, but they were, they were very hackery, right? Very much MIT hacker guys, yeah. uh, some of whom kind of grew into being game designers. Uh, but the first Zork is not that good. And it's funny because it just keeps selling and selling and selling. And it's like their third best selling yeah. game in 1986 or whatever. But um, it just kind of starts them off and they start taking that more and more seriously. Uh, and the company just grows very organically and they get play testers. And then some of those play testers like Brian Moriarty become uh, implementers. And like it's kind of one big, fairly happy family until we don't need to go like they, they try to make business software and it completely backfires and then everything starts going to hell over the next couple of years. And Trinity comes out in 86, which is kind of the beginning of the end, right? It's uh, the, 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 the bad business software has already kind of imploded, but um, the game at least gets started. I think when things are still looking pretty good and, you know, uh, gets, gets to be made kind of at the height of their powers, but you know, its sense of melancholy might not be completely 
unrelated to the circumstances around. Yeah. Brian Moriarty, according to Wikipedia, created Trinity Story in 1983. After joining Infocom in 84, he proposed it to the company, but management believed that it was too large for the Z machine, which is uh, the engine on which they worked at the time. After completing Wishbringer, Moriarty began working on Trinity in May 1985, researching the history of nuclear weapons and visiting the Trinity site in Los Alamos, New Mexico. He attempted to make the game accurately depict the geography of New Mexico and Kensington Gardens. Thanks for that, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> According to the Digital Antiquarian, Trinity had an unusually, if not inordinately, long development cycle for an Infocom game, stretching from Moriarty's first foray into Kensington Gardens in May of 1985 to his placing of the finishing touches of, on the game almost exactly one year later. The release story file bears a compilation timestamp of May the 8th, 1986. During that time, thanks to the arrival of Mikhail Gorbachev and Perestroika and a less belligerent version of Ronald Reagan, the superpowers crept back a bit from the abyss into which they'd started in 1983. Trinity, however, never wavered from its grim determination that it's only a matter of time until these Pandorian toys of ours lead to the apocalyptic inevitable. And back to Wiki for Moriarty completed the game in June 86 and later stated that writing it wasn't a pleasant experience. I can tell you that it's not easy to sit down and write that stuff. It was hard to live with that game for a year. However, the Trinity is not a funeral and don't be afraid of it. It's kind of a dark game, but it's also, I like to think, kind of a fun game too. But I do want people to think about what they see. Yeah, we'll get into the tone, obviously, and the, the setting. Let's talk about uh, Zill. Briefly, I'm sure, again, Jesse will know infinitely more than I do, but the Zork implementation language and the Z machine. Uh, yeah, this is this is the parser I was talking about. So, right. So the, the thing that distinguishes these text adventures from something like 80 Days or uh, other Inkle games, right, which have a, a are basically text adventures, but have a very yeah. different method of input, uh, is that you are typing things in and, you know, having things type back. And... Uh, Right, Colossal, and generally, like the the big Jason Scott documentary on text adventures is called Get Lamp because that is the classic command that you put in in Colossal Cave, right? Verb noun, um, and Zill is just a much much more advanced, and really until the not until Inform, which is kind of built on Zill in the '90s, when text adventures, parser based text adventures, start going kind of indie hobbyist, is there really something superior to it? A lot of people. Uh, try to kind of come at it and they kind of try to use Eliza-like kind of fake understanding what you're saying and it's always a big mess. And Zill is just like, you know, MIT AI kind of underpinning of like a real solid verb, noun, adjective, multiple compound sentence structure, which ends up not being something you use very much, interestingly, but you can. Uh, and we'll get into, like, I think there's something interesting about uh, how important this actually is, because I, I made a list of all of the verbs uh, that you need to complete this game. And there there I don't know if there's anything about this that can't be done in a point and click adventure, like with right. icons, right? Yeah. which is interesting. But yeah. it is a very advanced for the time kind of yes. parser that really... Oh. Absolutely. Amazed yeah. people. Mm. Yeah. And your first experience with one of these games often was more like Eliza than playing a game, right? You just right. kind of type things in and see what comes out. And when you can type in an entire sentence, 
and get an intelligible response. Yes. That that is mind blowing. And and Infocom, I they were like a triple A company in in their own sense, right? Like this was at least until the mid to late eighties, like cool yeah, cutting right. edge thing to show your pals who aren't even necessarily into video games. Yeah, absolutely. And and for grown ups too, in in many cases. I think the the versatility of the, the parser in this is still quite impressive, I thought. Mm. Um, just in terms yeah. of how natural, like say, so, like you know, not many uh, strong memories of text adventures back in the day, but I remember there being a lot of like, I don't understand that command, I don't understand this, oh, I don't understand. God, yeah. Whereas yeah. this, yeah, <clears throat> it wasn't so much of an issue. And it's interesting, like there were some examples where it would sort of allow you sort of shortcuts, right? Like yes. you'd say, um, you know, do do something with an item, and it will say like. You get it out of your pocket first, right? Then yeah. you, <laughs> yeah. That you know? was completely. Although there are, there, it's sort of a bit inconsistent with that. Stuff it is because sometimes yeah. it will say you're not holding the yeah. such and such, but then other times it'll be like you take the thing out of your pocket and open it and then put put it in the place. Yeah. So, um, uh, but yeah, compared to some of the ones I remember playing at the time, which was I do not recognize that verb, I do not recognize that noun, yeah. just over and over again. Yeah. Plus, like the sheer amount of like cogs turning in the background as well. Like time, yeah. you know, moving yes. and, um, you know, yeah, sort of the shadow of the sundial falling on the mushrooms and all that stuff. Yeah, it's... I, I can't even imagine, like, the tools <sighs> they had at the time. Yeah. I, it's still pretty phenomenal, I think. So the game was released initially on MS-DOS, uh, off, yeah, on May the 9th, 1986, and then was swiftly converted, I guess. I, I doubt they were all released contemporaneously, but I imagine they were out in short order for Macintosh, Apple II, Commodore... 128 and Amiga and ST, they had a sort of clever in-house machine that did almost like Unity. You press the, make this program into a different version and out it pops. Hmm. Yep. Reviews and accolades at the time. The reviews were high, strong, positive. Your computer gave it 100 out of 100. Commodore and Amiga review gave it 99. Commodore user gave it a 93% score. And happy computer. I wish there was still a Maybe you could, <laughs> TCGS could have been called that. Uh, 92 <laughs> out of 100 from Happy Computer. In 1996, 10 years after release, Next Gen Magazine listed Trinity at number 100 in their top 100 games of all time, commenting that Trinity takes the same types of serious themes of a mind forever voyaging and adds, them, adds to them a heavy dose of mythology and fantasy. This is not only one of the most socially and politically powerful game experiences ever created but also a landscape upon which puzzles of trademark Infocom quality can appear. Later the same year, Computer Gaming World listed Trinity among their top 150 best games of all time. The editors called it a tense, ethical tightrope walk through the Cold War, and it's repeatedly placed in the interactive fiction top 50 of all time, 10th in 2011, plummeted to 32nd in 2015, but came bouncing back in 2019 up to fourth place. And Jonathan Blow of Braid and The Witness development fame has named the game multiple times as one of his biggest video game inspirations, which makes an awful lot of sense when you think about both of those games. It does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Sales-wise, well, Jesse, you always manage to dig out the most fantastic ancient dusty documents <laughs> from your from your files. And here you've got a, what yeah, looks like a printed out sheet of 
from the company, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the, the, if 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 you Google Steve Moretsky files on the Internet Archive, there is over a gigabyte of like intra office memos and just everything. <laughs> like this is like you know, like Prince of Persia that we did last year. I tend to mm. go where the spotlight shines, right? Like I yep. love that game, but I really love the fact that Jordan Mechner wrote, wrote a good memoir about it. Yeah. And I love Infocom, but I really love. That yeah, you you can find all this information pretty freely if you look for it, and it's pretty fascinating. And yeah, people just keep buying Zork, even though it's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> what are the numbers on? Uh, so this was released. This this uh, piece of paper right. comes from '86, right? And, so you only uh, get the first year, and yeah. it sells like thirty three thousand, thirty five thousand, and apparently it does about forty forty five total. And yeah. as Jimmy Mayer writes in the uh, Digital Antiquarian, like a disproportionate number of them come from Commodore 128 owners who want something that only runs on the Commodore 128. Yeah, because no <laughs> still one else the is same today. Just get a new, yeah. get something out on on the new machine just yeah. to, to say it's there, and people it will buy it. It just makes me so happy to imagine someone like trying to show this to their friend and just being like, "Look, it recognizes it." Look, <laughs> it, it, it knows all the synonyms like and it like all these things that are like genuine improvements the infocom formula but like that is your right you know new kill zone or something the scenario and the setting it's the last day of your 599 dollar london vacation that's a lot of money in 86 <laughs> unfortunately it's also the first day of world war three only seconds remain before an h-bomb vaporizes the city and you with it unless you escape to another time another dimension for every atomic explosion unlocks the door to a secret universe a plane between fantasy and reality filled with curious artifacts and governed by its own mischievous logic you'll crisscross time and space as you explore this fascinating universe learning to control its inexorable power trinity leads you on a journey back to the dawn of the atomic age and puts the course of history in your hands infocom elsewhere also invokes a shakespeare quote from hamlet the time is out of joint, O cursed spite, that ever I was born to set it right. Intriguing stuff. Yeah, um, I, 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 I had sort of mixed feelings about the opening purely because I felt that sort of like that description. Uh, so I was ready for the Kensington section to be like one hundred percent mundane. And then, oh my God, this this you know incredible thing happens, and then the portal oh, opens, and uh, but it actually the weirdness starts almost immediately doesn't it um the mm. fascination with nannies and prams and the yeah. living grass <laughs> and all the rest it, of it it's very weird very fast i would agree yeah. yeah yeah um which i don't know i just thought that i yeah i thought it would have been cooler if if it was initially just like hey you're just you're just on holiday man don't <laughs> nothing nothing's weird is happening and then it was like this sudden shock and you know this event mm. sort of comes out of nowhere whereas it, it, yeah it, right off the bat it was you know sort of weird sort of adventure gamey things were happening you're just on holiday but clearly there are things that if you were just on holiday you would already be pointing at and going well hang on <laughs> this, this is weird, weird. Like, yeah. <laughs> does uh, i'm wondering we'll talk about the as i say uh, john mentioned the feelies uh you got in the box a map of the trinity site a cardboard sundial marked with odd symbols the illustrated story of the atom bomb which is an educational comic book mm. laden with ironic statements regarding the feelings of patriotism idealism and jingoism surrounding the production of atomic weaponry and instructions on how to fold an origami crane or izuru 
using the Yoshizawa Randlit system, a reference to Sadako Sasaki, and a small square of origami paper with which to do it. At this point, as this is Kena Rince, I am uh, duty-bound to point out that David Cage included an origami bird <laughs> in his game in 2010 or whenever it was, uh, pr- proving that he has no original ideas of his own whatsoever. <laughs> but I, what, uh, the point about mentioning the feelies, apart from the... Uh, you know the the idea that whenever you bought an Infocom game, you were automatically getting the kind of the collector's edition, a, a special set of things to touch and feel and play with, mm. which sort of made up for the lack of graphics or whatever in a way, things to look at and and feel indeed. But Sean mentioning the the really quite off kilter opening to this game, the the lack of context other than you are somebody on holiday in England. Would would any of the these references help to sell you the story if you'd bought the the whole set at the time? I mean the yeah possibly. I mean it's worth pointing out like the the comic that comes with it is genuinely really good. Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think like yeah, sort of comparing it to as you say, sort of modern day collectors editions. A lot of the the stuff you get is pretty phoned in, right? It's often quite cheap, and and they totally could have. Yeah. Um, not put that much effort into this into the comic, but it's actually great, as you say. Like it's really nicely drawn and written, and um, the fact that it yeah comes across sort of quite bitterly sarcastic at, at points is yeah, it's, it's really good. <laughs> um, and yeah, sort of the additional materials and stuff, yeah, like the, and you know the little sundial. I think would it would have been really nice to have that um, while playing this because I think it just gives you, especially you know, obviously with it being a text adventure having sort of little physical objects to go with it. I think it's just a really nice touch. And I, I, I miss, um, you know, like earlier PC stuff. I mean, I only got into PC gaming in sort of the late 90s. Yeah. But I, I miss, like, you know, every game purchase feeling like a cool, um, you're like, oh, you get a mm. massive box and there's like yes. really good artwork on it and stuff. And then obviously yeah. they, they move to like DVD cases. And I'm like, oh, this is loads more convenient. And then another five years later, we would then be resold big boxes again for more money. Um, so yeah, no, I, I think this stuff is lovely. Yeah, uh, Jesse, going into a game like this that is obviously a bit different from maybe the expected in terms of you might have played a Zork or a Colossal Cave or a, mm-hmm. a sci-fi or a fantasy traditional stuff. Here's here's a game that is, although it is sci-fi and fantasy, it's got this obvious, very real allegory, and 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 it starts you off in a real-world setting. Is that you know? Is that something that I, I think it might have? If I'd played this at the age of fourteen when it came out, uh, it would have intrigued me. But sort of, you know, we we were growing up in that world of when the wind blows and threads and uh, two tribes and all this stuff. Uh, but it doesn't quite go down that same path. No, I I think one thing that both of you, by definition, cannot understand is that it's set in Britain, so magical things happening is just oh, fine. That's what Americans <laughs> right. think. I get it. Yes, yes. exactly. Yeah. Like, like when I played this, I was like, oh, yeah, like the grass is alive and yeah. whatever. Like it's, London. It's, it's yeah. London. Yeah, I've seen movies. <laughs> well, it brings me on to my next question, which, again, perhaps with... Uh, obviously, I've looked at the, the resources and the feelies and everything, but the game doesn't really make it clear who are you and why, why there is magical realism. There's uh, some exploration on this from a website called The Game Shelf. This is written by Andrew Plotkin back in 2015. We might decide that the protagonist is a guardian of history, a peer of the giggling narrator, 
or that the protagonist is the giggling narrator, talking to themselves across the timeline. Or maybe the protagonist is Oppenheimer. Not Oppenheimer, let's say, but all of the innocent or guilty bystanders in each of the history scenes. You are not the London vacationer. You take their viewpoint temporarily up to the point where they enter the explosion. Then you take the viewpoint of a Russian technician and so forth. The realisation that you are in a different body in every scene would arrive gradually. This would require a different approach to some scenes, of course. There is no NPC viewpoint in space and the bikini test. The dolphin, perhaps? Then, at the Trinity site, you are Donald Hornig babysitting the equipment until, contra real history, you or he find yourself at risk. Yeah, I mean, I found this all quite mind-boggling. Did anyone yeah. get, I mean, get but, a grip on this? But, but that isn't Plotkin thinking that's the actual, that's him trying to reimagine how to do this because he's not satisfied with right. it being the, the Zorkian everyman, which it essentially is. Mm, right. right. This okay. is him trying to figure out a, basically a different game. Yeah, I mean, and he wrote a letter to Brian Moriarty at the time about being dissatisfied with the ending, apparently. So <laughs> you know, he's, yeah. he's, he's been thinking about this for, for a while. Uh, so is it but, satisfying that you're an everyman who suddenly is thrown into this situation and you have to puzzle this all st stuff all out and you have the fate of humanity at your hands it is if you've played previous infocom games and you just accept that as a given that's kind of my main feeling <laughs> okay. coming away from this is there's a very glass half empty half full thing whereas if you come to this after playing zork in the enchanter games and other like good solid adventure games then it's it, this is just going to seem amazing because it's that thing you already like but now being applied to this serious you know kind of deep subject Whereas for all of us, maybe coming to it, those conventions, we just kind of cock an eye at, right? And we're just like, okay, I guess you're just, you know, an every person. You have no personality. Sure. Hmm. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd, I was quite happy with the idea of it just being a, an every person. Just like, okay. you know, life's full of ordinary people doing extraordinary things just because they were thrown into extraordinary situations. Right. So it didn't really... Yeah, yeah I, I, I was okay with it. Like, it's... And, you know, and, and it reminded me a bit of, I don't know if I can say, because it's kind of saying it spoils it. There's a, a film that came out last year um, where it's, you know, character just sort of muddling through situations and then sort of realizing by the end that they've sort of acquired, you know, all this knowledge of the, the workings of a system that most people aren't even aware of. Mm. And yeah, by, by doing that sort of gradually by the end, you're like, oh, yeah, they've basically sort of gained superpowers by being the only one who just sort of happens to have fallen into this and understood it. And I, I got a similar vibe from this, I think. Oh, I like that. Yeah. A little bit more of the writing. This is from the game, just to give you an idea of the sort of descriptions of the rooms and what happens when you interact. Cottage. An iron cauldron, brown with the crust of... Ye of years, squats in the middle of this tiny chamber. Coils of steam writhe from its depths, filling the air with a greasy stench that makes your nose wrinkle. Luckily, the front door is wide open. Another door leading east is closed. A crudely drawn map hangs upon the wall. The biggest book you've ever seen lies open on a pedestal in the corner. There's a birdcage here. Inside the birdcage, you see a magpie. The magpie blinks at you. Examine the book. The open book is so wide it's impossible to touch both edges with your arms outstretched. Its thousands of vellum leaves form a two-foot heap on either side of the spine. The rich binding probably required the cooperation of twenty calves. Examine the birdcage. The closed birdcage is cunningly woven of brown and yellow wicker. Peering between the slats, you see a magpie. The magpie makes a croaking sound. 
Examine map. The map shows a network of boxes connected by lines and arrows with many erasures and scrawled additions. Something about the pattern is maddeningly familiar, but you can't put your finger on where you've seen it before. Examine the magpie. Its sharp little eyes stare back at you suspiciously. And not to keep beating this horse that's already probably <laughs> dead, but the way that that's written, the amount of adjectives and stuff that are used in that, you can draw such a good mental picture of the inside of this cottage. But if, if you know, you were somehow forced to show somebody else what your mental picture looked like, it would be totally different. There's just enough there for, for yeah. it to feel like it's, you know, it's something of your creation but not so much that it's going to spoil it. It's not like watching a film and seeing the cottage that everybody else is going to see exactly. It's it's reading and creating your own thing. And okay, fine. This is this is just what books do. But this is why I like <laughs> this text because it does what a good book does. Mm. The um, that phrasing, the rich binding, probably required the cooperation of twenty cars. <laughs> it's it's so close to being like irritatingly clever. <laughs> but it's again it's it's but it's not quite doesn't quite go too far it's yeah brilliant mm. talk about the themes of the game uh, brian moriarty in computer gaming world in november 1986 said i wanted people when playing the game to feel their helplessness because that's what i felt when i was reading and talking to these people and seeing these places you could just feel the weight of history on you going to trinity site and being there and realizing what this place means I just wanted people to feel the weight on them when playing the game, have it crush them in the end, because that's what I got out of my studies and research. I might have felt crushed by the complexity and difficulty <laughs> of some of the puzzles. I mean, the it's interesting playing this in 2021. Obviously, the nuclear apocalypse, the Armageddon is still a threat, but it doesn't currently feel like the most in the the most the the most heavy sword of Damocles that we've got hanging above mm. us. I've I've spoken many times because I think it formed me a lot about me as a person that growing up in the seventies and eighties we did think that it the Armageddon was probably going to happen at some point in, mm. in on some level. And I think it affected our entire sort of attitude to our approach to life for a lot of us, us, us Gen Xers, like just slacking you know just not thinking there was reason to actually achieve anything because mm. what's the point when it's all going to be dust uh and you know maybe that's a lazy excuse but i think it's something that has been studied and, and traced but playing this now yes it's uh it feels more like yeah more like hopefully more like a, a history piece yeah i mean it, it's i mean we're sort of skipping on to ending chat i guess <laughs> no it's, it's if it's relevant it's, fine bring it yeah um like because i've always you know been a big fan of the idea that you know although the world is full of great you know scientists engineers thinkers artists etc it's all, like it's quite common that when there is like a huge breakthrough it's just that, that like the world was ready for it like the conditions had come about to make that invention happen you know like, uh, like yeah. it's like a it's quite common that um, you know, whenever there is a, a great breakthrough, it will later turn out that on the other side of the world, there was someone who was like also really close, um, you know, to, to achieving the same thing. And it's, yeah, and it's just that the conditions have arrived, you know, for, for certain things to happen. And I think right. that's kind of what this game is getting at, um, is that there is an inevitability. And it's like, even if you could go to the Trinity site and jeopardize the whole thing, 
wouldn't necessarily change anything. Um, no, which the Russians in... are six months behind. I mean, yeah, exactly. You go to one of their <laughs> testing sites during this game, and they seem to yeah. be doing okay. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of it's sort of gesturing at the futility of what you're doing, mm. but also, as you say, you can sort of you can look at it now in 2021 and sort of think, well, yeah, but like you say, that 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 apocalypse never happened. So. Is is the ending a good one in in that sense? In that, like, it's just showing you that although it was inevitable, it's all that's all right. Maybe although obviously it's different in the game because London still gets nuked um, every time. Well, that was my understanding anyway. I don't know if uh, uh, is that yeah yeah. It's 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 a weird. I don't quite understand the ending, but I mean, it's a loop, right? You yeah. go back and you're basically same thing that's happening at the beginning of the game is about to happen. Mm-hmm. And do you think is it is it implied that yeah that basically your character is just going to keep going back through the doors and just going to keep trying? I think that was yeah. There's a suggestion we've got that your actions do make a difference though in some way in that the Mm. the the resultant explosion is less apocalyptic than it would have been had you not been involved but it still happens okay. or some, something it's like that. very confused I, I don't get this bit i will just i mean i've tried <laughs> reading about it and i honestly am just like okay so because right if you die in the end part right maybe yeah. to let, just to give the broad view this game has basically three parts right you've got the you're in kensington gardens you escape you're in kind of a hub world with these mushrooms where you go and you do puzzly things uh and and they bring you to different uh nuclear bomb explosions in history and then in this last part you're at the actual trinity uh site in 1945 or whenever i might have mm. the date wrong but i think that's right um but right every if you die in that like all of new mexico gets obliterated by a by a like a multi gigaton blast or something because nuclear explosions work differently in this world and right it i don't that's the part that just baffles me. And it's uh, it's funny because I read Jimmy Mayer wrote in one of these comments and one of these articles, like his idea for an alternate ending. And when I read it, I was like, oh, this is just what I assumed was going to happen, which is basically you sabotage it. It delays things for a week and then they just like do it because yeah, why would that possibly the ground wire and do it again? Yeah. <laughs> right. Like that's all you do yeah. is like you, you, muck it up for a day or whatever but like i assumed because i vaguely remembered that it's a loop and that you just end up back there again and i i assume that was why but there's something more convoluted going on that i don't totally get well i'm glad to hear you say that so because yeah i came away (laughs) feeling a little bit baffled as to the the agency of my actions and uh and indeed kind of what i've been through because the whole mushroom hub world is kind of i mean it's it's whimsical in in some ways. It's fairy yeah. tale, but it's also really weird. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's the geography changes every every couple of areas that you move through. And I saw something. I think um, Leon, you posted a link to a walkthrough that you were looking at at one point. And when I was playing uh, the ending last night, and I got stuck in the Trinity site yeah. and got pissed off with it, and yeah. just googled for a walkthrough. I think I found the same one. And it's mentioned somewhere in there that the hub world is supposed to semi-reflect the ge- the geography of the areas that you're that you're heading right. to, and some Each, of that makes yeah. sense. Like it makes sense. Yeah. You go to I think a mesa, which is just there. You go from a forest across a canyon <laughs> that is as wide as imagine the largest possible <laughs> oak tree you can imagine. Your canyon is that wide, which is 
maybe sort of 50 or 60 meters at max you go across and suddenly you're in a mesa and that one takes you through to i think that i think the mesa one takes you through to somewhere in the desert it might not uh, that might be the one that takes you through to the, the pacific island um, yeah bikini it takes you to the bikini atoll where you get the coconut Oh, yeah. yeah okay so maybe that's not actually connected to a mesa but i was thinking the other ones yeah, like the, the waterfall area doesn't connect you to well i mean in the game it connects you to flying in space in a satellite but there's nothing <laughs> nothing about the waterfall area that seemed to make sense of that to me maybe apart from the fact that it's connected to an ice cavern but i i, I read this thing about the the hub world supposedly being a little bit similar to the geography of the areas and i've, I've been trying to piece it together in my mind but i don't know it's i mean i just got lots of fantasy kind of tropes when i went through it. i was i was surprised at how um how much kind of alice in wonderland dna was in here mm, and yeah. part part of that might be because i read through the um the instruction manual uh, mm. that came with the game beforehand and they give a um like a fake scenario of a, a potential adventure game to try and teach you how to use the the different verbs and things and the yes. one that it teaches, it shows you is an extremely Alice in Wonderland. You're chasing after a rabbit and you eat a mushroom and things get bigger yeah. and smaller. So maybe that just sort of put it in my mind. But it seemed very, I don't want to say like generic fantasy, but it seemed very um, sort like of stereotypical. Shot, isn't it? I think it's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned Alice in Wonderland there. There are quotes throughout the game, literary references and allusions to We've got uh, yeah Lewis Carroll obviously Alexander Pope Arthur Rimbaud uh, Matthew from the Bible Arthur C Clarke Nathaniel Hawthorne Walt Whitman and Herman Melville so uh, I don't know uh, how many uh, yeah I I wouldn't have uh, th those quotes are actually they come up in a in a text box and mm. uh, yeah, with yeah. a with with attribution to them uh, I I wasn't sure the, the fully the purpose other than sort of saying this is like these yeah <laughs> yeah i think in in terms of the the hub world versus some of the other stuff i think there's it really helps if you're willing to sort of dive in and out of like thinking about it too much like i think the the timey-wimey stuff is really interesting and there's a good discussion to be had there whereas with the hub world i've just sort of thought like i'm just going to accept this there's a magical world where every time a newt goes off, there's a yeah, new mushroom to. with a door on it, and right. I, <laughs> like, and that's fine. Um, it like it sort of because it was so fantastical and so magical. I was just like, yeah, do you know what? This is just a different place that works on different rules, and I'm broadly okay with that. It would be difficult to make a film out of it, I think. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I think um, potentially the most fun that I had with this game was getting through the London section, which is, I think, I mean, Jesse, you even described this as kind of a you know, tutorial section, like a basic section. It even ends with a, a title card when you go through the door at the end of the Kensington mm. Gardens. Uh, but exploring the hub world and mapping it out and looking at all of the different puzzle pieces and trying to figure out exactly what's going to connect to what, that was almost certainly the, the highlight of the entire game for me, just, just mucking about and reading the text and mm. playing with some of the sort of basic but also, you know, quite obtuse puzzles at the same time i really like the things like um sticking your hand into the beehive and the bees <laughs> chasing you and you really need to be looking at the map to realize that this bee is going to kill you in about 
four moves and i think you've got to spend (laughs) two or three to get to the area where there's a venus flytrap that will kill the bee but like Mm. saving that and having the bee chasing after you and trying loads of things and just running around and and eventually just almost stumbling blindly into the correct solution because all you really need to do is just run east twice (laughs) and you will eventually do that no matter what happens yeah. Uh, I mean, killer bees aside, there was definitely a sense that if if this was me and this was really happening, I would probably just stick around in the hub world and probably not worry too much about yeah, actually solving nice. the problem. Yeah, nap, <laughs> leaned up against the, the mushroom. Of, yeah, the way it describes it as you know this sort of perpetual twilight and stuff. It yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. But um, yeah, so I, I, part of me was like, I'd probably just hang around here. To be honest, I think I think yeah. I'd be okay. <laughs> Live in the cottage, don't blow it up. Yeah. I, mean, that's um, <laughs> the, I, I guess that's the bit where where my stupid human logical brain was sort of trying to actually think what is like how have i have i as the protagonist made the connection between my actions in this bizarre fantasy world and the reality of nuclear armageddon in mm. what i consider to be the real world because a lot of the the motivation relies on the player accepting that they are playing an adventure game it's not that you're being driven as such you you're only driven by curiosity really aren't you at the beginning yeah, at least. yeah it doesn't say it doesn't say you need to do this to save the world it's just like examine the place because you're in the place pick up the thing because the thing is there you know yeah it's it's very video gamey in that sense isn't it there's no like there's zero sort of self-reflection or or any sort of like, well, hang on. Why am I doing this? What's what's going on here? It's like it's for you to have those conversations in your head. But yeah, as mm. a as the character, you are just doing all the things because what else is there to do? Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> it's abstract. Yeah. yeah, it. I I I think that's kind of a strength and a weakness, right? Where mm-hmm. you make the emerald by doing this complicated potion, <laughs> which is very again kind of generic Zorkian fantasy, and you have just no idea why you have done this whole thing no. mm. other than a magpie told you to yeah and you, do, and and you just you assume take... that making the potion will turn out to be worthwhile because it's, it's in the game told you to. You for, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because the objects that it requires when you pick them up it gives you a point and yes it beeps, and there is that you know something <laughs> has gone right score out of 100 but who honestly would have honestly <laughs> worked out that once you've finally got both the red gem and the green gem i mean i suppose the clue is in the color of the wellington boots but to then put your your i mean this is a great example of the logic in this game putting gems in welly boots to make you run fast across a desert well i think so i had a, a whatsapp conversation earlier today uh, a friend asked me if i was free to play games tonight and i said no i'm you know, doing this episode of Kane and rinse I'm talking about trinity and he says oh what's that mm-hmm. um so i started explaining um and i said you know so there's a, i've got a lot of nice things to say about it but also some of the puzzles are unbelievable i said okay so <laughs> for example there's a bit where you go through a door and find yourself in outer space um in order to survive that you simply have to ensure that you've previously stood in a tray of soap water where a boy is playing with a bubble wand and <laughs> let him make a bubble around you which then freezes in space also while you're in space you have to strangle a little lizard at the right time so that you can use it in a magic potion later and then the magic potion creates an emerald which you can then place inside a green boot to help give you super speed so you can move fast enough to sabotage the test of the first nuclear bomb in New Mexico. And they <laughs> and said, that, all right, we'll see you on Monday. We didn't need to make a podcast. <laughs> that, that pretty much sums it up. When you put it like that, it sounds silly. <laughs> but it, I mean, it's 
I think the one of the things that really got me about this was just the the way that everything kind of piles on top of you fairly early and you realize if you've come into the hub world and you've somehow managed to hold on to all of the items that you needed to after being in London, even though the game specifically makes you drop everything onto the floor and you have to <laughs> yeah. then manually pick them it all It does back that a couple up. of times as well, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. Quite, quite naughty, I thought, but... Um, like, you can type take all you can yeah, if you knew that shortcut. You certainly can, you but the idea that you're just going to forget to do that because <laughs> just it just seems yeah. really, oh, yeah. really obtuse, the idea that you need to pick everything back up. Um, and one of the items that got me quite a lot later is this piece of paper, which if you've done what you're supposed to do with it, the game kind of implies that it's now junk. Like the at the end of the Kensington Gardens section, this pram right. crashes, and one mm. of the things the text specifically says is that the little piece of paper is now wrecked. So I was just like, oh, forget that then. Just leave that on the floor. That's that's clearly served its purpose. You know, six blooming mushrooms later, I'm struggling to find what to do. No. And I eventually go and look it up. It says, oh, you, needed to, you need to use an origami crane or something. And in yep. the area that you're in, there's a ton of origami, but you can't do anything with it. You've got to try and pick up the origami that's there, and you can't. And you eventually realise that it was this piece of paper that the game specifically told you was busted yeah. a long time ago, like a Just week cruel. ago at this point. I mean, that's that's the main problem with the puzzles, isn't it? It's the, yeah. you know, like, okay, players can get lost or, you know, some of the, the logic to the puzzles might seem strange, but, you know, with, with a certain amount of, you know, use X on Y, you, you might get it, but it's mm. it's how early you can doom yourself and have no idea. There's yeah. so many very strange things that you can do yeah. that the game probably shouldn't let you do, like mm-hmm. leaving items behind in areas that you can't return to. Mm-hmm. Uh, going into an area that has your only purpose in this area is to collect three items and then leave, or like mm-hmm. do a small puzzle, collect some items and leave. But mm-hmm. you, this game has a bloody encumbrance. Um, yes, <laughs> the worst single worst it. feature of the game. Which is nonsense, and this got me so badly that I thought I was being really clever at one point. You can find some boots, and you can find a shroud, and I sort of realised that you get a few items that are fairly small, and you can put them in your pockets, and the game then tells you that they're in your pockets. Mm. And when you press I to look at your inventory, it says you are holding an axe and a lantern and a walkie-talkie. In your pockets are a coin and a credit card and a bag of crumbs or something. So I thought, oh, wicked, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this shroud on and it's going to give me extra pocket space and I'll just stick <laughs> all of this stuff that's really small in, in the pockets on this shroud and it doesn't bloody work. You pick up the boots and they tell you this boot has a little recess in it and I thought, oh, great, I can put stuff in the recess. I can <laughs> store this bag of it. crumbs <laughs> in the boot. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, so like my feet are a size 9, this boot's made for a size 12. I can put this little bag of crumbs in the end of the boot. That's what they're talking about with a recess. And I must have spent 10 minutes put uh, put crumbs in boot. Which boot? Red or green? Green. You can't do that with while the boot is on your foot. Okay, take off boot, put boot in crumbs. Which boot? Red slash green. Green. The thing, the crumbs fall out of the boot. Uh, put boot on ground, put crumbs in boot. The crumbs fall out of the boot. Oh, it took me so long to realise what they actually meant. I mean, it's, and it's weird, isn't it? Because it's it can be so granular and, and detailed about this stuff, but then you sort of think, 
well, if I'm taking these boots on and off, what, was I barefoot before? Where are my shoes? Yeah, like, if you're going to be so that. fussy about this stuff. Right. That, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, mean, it's... I think uh, the, key, the key point is, I suppose, that not only is computer game, the idea that computer games uh, respect, should respect your time, uh, you know, computer games respecting your time is, is, a, is a relatively modern quality of life mm. uh, evolution. But the concept that computer games should respect your time is a relatively modern. Mm. <laughs> like this was <laughs> actually back in 1986. Part of the getting your value for money was how it was sort of combing through the, 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 the microbes of the infinite, almost infinite possibilities of, of a game like this and uh, and actually solving the the pattern in which you had to pick up items and and leave them behind. I'm wondering, does this game have an undo? No, no. Just so, uh, just save scumming, okay. which are certainly <laughs> yeah. expected to do. Since there's sure. plenty of like, you walk into a door and now you're in outer space and you die. <laughs> scenario, and you can keep multiple saves. Yeah, it yeah. depends on the platform, but you yeah. know, usually up to eight or something, and and that was certainly part of part of the Infocom experience. And I think the manual explicitly tells you, yeah. you know, save before you do something dangerous. This was before and, LucasArts came along with their "you can't die in our games" uh, yeah. a few years later. Right, and and trying to get rid of unwinnable states. Although even with Maniac Mansion, that does have some because it's yeah. it's hard to actually yes. right even and 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 that's the funny thing is Infocom was renowned for being user friendly, right? Yeah. Certainly compared to like Sierra, oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, I won't go on a tangent about an anecdote, but like some legendarily right malicious <laughs> yeah. uh, things like this, where where like there would be a thing at the beginning of the game that would be randomized. I actually did think of this. One in Space Quest Three, there is a code at the beginning of the game uh, that is randomized, and if you didn't look at it, you know you could be ten hours later and you could write them a letter and be like, "I'm stuck," and they'll just be like, "Well, we can't help you because it's randomized every time." <laughs> uh, mm. And the Infocom games, you know, they they had a whole playtesting department, right? Like very serious. They found bugs. They found things they thought were unfair. And it's interesting to look at these things in that context of like, I guess. They thought all this was fair, which is, I would disagree with some of it. Mind-boggling, uh, yeah. Uh, specifically, the inventory limit, which just feels like a vestige of this simu. Like, yeah, Zork has like hunger meters and random combat and other kind of right. RPG simulationist stuff that the games kind of gradually shake off over the years. And this feels like the final one, where it's just like mm. there's no point to it, and it forces you to like maintain multiple saves before the end part because you don't know what objects you're going to need and it's essentially kind of arbitrary uh but i will like they do the funny thing is the compound sentences and like the advanced parser i think is mostly useful when you have to redo stuff right like it is kind of a because you're never when you're in the middle of solving a puzzle going to do some elaborate sentence it's it's always like okay i gotta go back from this save and just what's the shortest you know kind of path back to where i was getting the thing i needed uh you end up doing a lot of compound sentences they have the command super brief you can turn on where it just gets rid of all the descriptions Mm. (laughs) and like they're there's funny UI things designed around the fact that you're probably going to have to start this game again once from the beginning yeah. when you hit the end and you realize you don't have the bag of crumbs or whatever. Uh, <laughs> and I didn't experiment. I did a you used yeah. and you would fully expect to just 
dump on the floor, especially after five <laughs> mushrooms where they haven't come up. It's yeah. such an odd thing to make you keep all the way through the game. This very uh, explicitly well, useless. It's, there's sort of a clue in the, but I, well, I suppose you don't know that it's in, unless you've done your reading on the game. You don't know that the Kensington Gardens is a wraparound. Time well, but the, the, the Roadrunner does steal the ruby from you at the beginning and you get an emerald. So I guess if you're sufficiently Infocom sensitized, mm. you will, <laughs> you'll put these things together. I mean, is I think it, that's... Yeah. It is consistent in that every item is useful at some point, right? There aren't any genuine red herrings, are there? I don't, I don't think I don't so. I remember the yeah. credit card ever being useful, which oh, that's I right. off with. Yeah. Well, I think that I saw lots of things in the Invisiclues and in the walkthrough about... This will be funny if you try to give the credit card to the bird lady and she makes some joke about this in Harrods, love. Maybe that's what that was for. That's the only thing the credit card was there but for. I suppose it, is it, just, it just makes sense for scene setting that you have a credit card on you because you've only got 50p in change on you. Sure. But then does that credit card take up space? I mean, should you just throw it on the floor at the beginning after you give the bird woman it might that arbitrarily fee? fail you for not having kept your credit card till the end of the game. <laughs> but then, I mean, does that also, does throwing the credit card on the floor allow you to take a lantern when you previously I, couldn't? Right? I could pocket. never figure it out. <laughs> I, I, I've never had a problem with the pocket being full, so I do not resent the credit card in specific. No, but I think they do take up space because I shoved as many things as I could into my pocket <laughs> and it still... I think I, I had a point where... Well, some things just don't... You, you can try the lantern. You can empty your pocket. The lantern is still not going in there. Well, it was like, it was <laughs> things like the credit card, the, the money that turns from being a 50p into a 20p, which I, I quite enjoyed the idea that the game never actually told me that these were coins. I think it tells you at the beginning it's a seven-sided coin. And yeah, yeah, because he's woman. American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You give it to the woman, she gives you another coin back, and she was shouting 30p for a bag of bird feed. And if, if you know what, you know, if you understand coins, you're like, oh, seven-sided coin, that's probably a 50p. Even what then. I thought was funny was the fact that you get a 20p coin back, they'd only been in circulation four years at that point. Well, I was, I was wondering <laughs> that about the 50ps, because one of my... Um, uh, this would have been the old one, the, yeah, the heavy the big, one. the heavy one, yeah, my, yeah. One of my really strong childhood memories was uh, going to the, like, the Coke vending machine at school and oh, being yeah. given a 50p back. And it was one of the smaller ones. I remember looking at it with my friend going, what the hell is this? Like biting it to check if it was, you know, not that you would have known at 11 or whatever. If, you know, this is a fake coin. But looking at this thing thinking, what on earth is this much smaller 50p that I've never seen before? It's just one of the many fantasy elements of uh, of being in Britain as an American is like multi-sided <laughs> coins. I, I was going to say, I, I did enjoy one of the Invisi clues, or sorry, one of the Invisi sort of questions being, what is a P? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Have, yeah, did you guys talk about the feelies and the Invisi clues and stuff while I was gone? We did, yeah. So, a little bit. Uh, so we didn't talk about the Invisi clues, did we? No, oh, okay. we haven't got into Invisi clues yet. I was, I was actually going to, as we're talking about the logic and solving the game, I thought this would be a good, a good point to bring in uh, Jesse's found this uh, Graham Nelson's Player's Bill of Rights uh, from the Key and Compass walkthrough. We know that the game, you actually only ever use 20 verbs in the entire... You could get it down to less. I just fewer. made this list because right. I was curious. Sorry, right. fewer. <laughs> no, no, sorry. I wasn't correcting your grammar then. I was just... That was my brain doing the... <laughs> Come on, Jesse. <laughs> I was just curious to see, right, that... I don't think there's anything here you couldn't do in a point-and-click game, yeah, yeah. which isn't to say this wouldn't be incredibly different as a point-and-click game. Mm -hmm. right? Lots and I of do think... these things would just be under the use banner in like a yeah, Monkey use, Island yeah. style game. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. 
but I, I'm interested in like what is the the I don't know the phenomenology of using the parser in a sense, given that it's not about making elaborate compound. Like Infocom would generally sell it on the you can do you can type anything, right? You, you who knows what you'll need to do, and <laughs> who knows what elaborate sentences you'll need to do. Mm. And like once or twice in the game, I did do like you know dolphin fetch me the coconut. That was like a a, a cool thing that it recognized. Yeah. Uh, and and as we said, it it runs great, but for the most part, it's you know, uh, it, it does the job, but it, it's what you're getting out of the experience of typing things into the computer and having it type back at you mm. is a unique one for other reasons than being able to do things you couldn't do in terms of puzzles with uh, a 90s point and click game. Point to coconut also works, for example. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize that, but that I did use that later with, I think the Roadrunner gets you a key. And yeah. I, I'm pretty sure it was just because the walkthrough said point to key. Uh, ah. But at that point, I'd already used the dolphin get the coconut, which right. I think mm. was holding the invisiclues because yeah. there was a weird point in this game where I was very much under the impression that uh, what your um, objective was going to be was to somehow stop all of the nuclear explosions yeah. going off yes. throughout the, the mm. different mushroom doors. So I spent a probably embarrassingly long amount of time, uh, specifically in the satellite one, trying to sabotage the satellite with as many things as possible. Like it specifically <laughs> tells you, I think, when you when you bump into the satellite, that the thrusters on it um, adjust to um, change the trajectory with your weight. So I bought as many things as I could into the satellite area and tried to, you know, chop the thrusters with the axe or, like, throw the coconut at the thrusters. Right. Yeah. Um, well, that that is genuine to sort of, yeah, make sense in human logic. Yeah, and, it's not unreasonable, mm, right? And it's not unreasonable so. in narrative terms that the point of the game would be for you to try to be stopping all of these nuclear explosions from actually yeah, happening. Yeah. But, I mean, in yeah. virtually all of them, you end up just being a sort of an in-out weird bystander Um well, yeah, he said, yeah. just a shuffle or something. <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> run into this area that's about to be decimated and steal something and run away. <laughs> I do feel a, a weakness of this game, aside from the you know the 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 puzzly stuff, but in terms of the themes, right? The writing is pretty beautiful, and, and Moriarty is generally acknowledged as probably the best. Like all the Infocom writers are at least pretty decent, but probably considered the best. Uh, but I do think he falls down to some extent on just like the symbolic resonance of all this stuff, right? There's some things like the boy, the giant boy with the bubble uh, who you see previously in Kensington mm. Gardens where I like that. Like, uh, it, at least it's something. At least it's sort of a surreal vibe that does not feel like it could have been in a Zork game. But you have the whole sequence with like there's a barrow white and the icicle and the key and like stuff that. Like the um, yeah, the MIT guys were were pretty uh, sober minded, right? As opposed to like you know the Stanford kind of like Silicon Valley people who would like take mushrooms and go to a vision quest or something, right? right? Like right. the the and I think it by and large benefited them. I think they ran a tight ship in like a good way that made these games way more bug free mm. and way and very creative and all that. But like, I did wish this game was more of a bad trip. Like, I do wish that this, that, like, Moriarty had done transcendental meditation like David Lynch 
So this would be more like season three of Twin Peaks. We're like, I don't know what's going on there either, but like I get some like the vibes stick with me of the that clearly all this stuff has some intense symbolic resonance to the author. And even if I don't understand it, mm. it resonates with me. Yeah, getting and... in, getting in the soap was a little a bit of a just because <laughs> you're just thinking about the scale of things. It just doesn't doesn't make any sense but at the same time it tickled me like i enjoyed that i thought that was (laughs) stupid and funny and when i came to the realization that actually this satellite area is not some grand thing that you have to do to knock the satellite off course you're just there for six turns and you have to do another very specific puzzle with a very obtuse solution while you're there but really (laughs) you're just kind of a a tourist in the area um and when i had that realization that i was overthinking all of this that kind of tickled me. It made me think, well, that's maybe, you know, I'm too trained by video games to think that everything must have a very solid solution rather than just, yeah. you're just there to view it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's uh, let's look at Graham Nelson's Player's Bill of Rights, talking about uh, what Trinity, what, what Graham Nelson thinks uh, an Infocom game should, should and shouldn't do. To be uh, to be fun for the player, one not to be killed without warning. I think it fails on this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not to be given horribly unclear hints. I guess there's a fine line between horribly unclear and deliciously uh, yeah. abstract, tantalizingly obtuse. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I think that the the thing this game forces you to do, and I, you know. I tend to be kind of scattered brained and like playing these games is useful for me to try to slow down. But like, Mm. you have to really read the pros and exam. There's Mm. the puzzles I didn't get. One major category was I didn't examine every object. Right. Like I just didn't like slow down in that way. And I feel like the unclear hints are often for me just like, I'm not meticulous enough. Mm. Uh, And is that fun? I don't know. But I mean, this this probably goes on to the next one as well, but I felt that there was a very clear pattern with basically every area of this game where the way that I managed to get through a lot of it was go into the area, immediately look around, see what's in each section, map it out, and then inevitably by that point, especially if you're in one of the mushroom areas, you will have been killed. So at that point, (laughs) you just reload and it's like, right, well, now I know that there's only four spots here and... They all seem mm. fairly useless apart from this one. So this is the one that I probably need to be focusing on. Which takes us on to point three, to yeah. be able to win without experience of past lives. <laughs> Absolutely not. Ooh, not yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. To be able to win without knowledge of future events. Mm, it kind of ties so. in, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 Not to have the game closed off without warning. No, well. that's the same thing. Yeah. yeah. No, well, that's a di- I mean, see, that's I mean, the thing. Being the- blocked out rather than killed, right? Right. And that's the walking dead problem, which is worse, right? Like you walk into a mushroom, you die, you restore. That's fine. You realize you should have had the bag of crumbs six hours ago. And you basically (laughs) lost the game for the last six hours. (laughs) Right. That's, that's, I think what five is getting at. And that is, I think the biggest, again, and the inventory limit just exacerbates that because you can't even just use the heuristic grab everything that isn't nailed down. Hmm. Not to need to do unlikely things. I think that's a fail. <laughs> it's uh, a f- not fail, but I want to say that there were not... I can't think immediately off the top of my head of anything that wasn't 
also sort of semi um like laid out that you sort of need to do this like you could say that one of the most obtuse things in my mind was um killing the skink in those four or five moments while you're in the satellite area and you could yeah. say that that's complete nonsense but if you're just messing about the magpie eventually will give Tells you enough you. clues that you're supposed to yeah. do that and maybe there are things that are you know well, really obtuse to, that you have to do that sort of plays on to the next uh, number seven which is not to need to do boring things for the sake of it it depends if you consider wait 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 Wait, a boring thing, I suppose, or take item out of pocket before giving it to someone because arbitrarily the game sometimes says first you take the thing out of your pocket and sometimes it says you're not holding the thing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of the waiting stuff, I think most examples of that, there's like a situation unfolding, right? Um, that there's a few yeah. where, where yeah. yeah, it's just like time passes, time passes, time passes, oh, things happen. But yeah. but then there are also ones where it's like a you know, obviously one in particular where it's like a really tense build up um, to something happening and you're sort of you know waiting for the, the opportune moment and it's and every time you wait there's like an update and there's more chatter and there's more um, you know time moving on in an interesting way rather than just mm. time has passed um, mm-hmm. so it's yeah sometimes it nails that and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, I don't think you do too many boring things, uh, mm. certainly not for the sake of it. Uh, there are some repetitive things like going up into the the place with the sundial and yeah. pushing and pulling the lever, but that's important because mm. it demarks progress and, and yeah. where you are in the game and stuff. So the next three are all related, which is, uh, and I think it passes on on these pretty well, not to have exa- to type exactly the right verb, to be allowed reasonable synonyms and to have a decent parser. Yeah, to have reasonable freedom of action. Well, within what is by its nature a very constrictive game, I would say it probably passes that. You can you can move around at will between most of the locations once you know where everything yeah. is. There's there's one mushroom that requires you right. You need the skink from mushroom three when you go into mushroom two to kill it and yeah. you know, sort of solve that puzzle. And besides that, the mushrooms are all independent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do them in any order, which seems like about the right amount of, you know, interdependence. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I thought that was well paced. Not to depend much on luck. Is there, is there any, are there I don't any, think there's any. any RNG in this? I don't think so. To be able to understand a problem once it's solved. Well, I suppose there's, there's understand and there's understand. There's understand what happened and then there's understand why the hell it happened. I guess. Uh, not to be given too many red herrings. Yeah, I don't think they're like, even if they sound because because of their absurdity and surreality, certain things feel like they could be red herrings. But then it turns out that, yes, you actually did have to climb into the soap dish to you know whatever <laughs> uh, one one thing that was quite red herring in my mind was the invisiclues um and okay. i i had a Let's great bring those in time here. uh reading through those because so many of those are almost just taking the piss out of you um when you some, some of them, them are deliberately not related to yeah, the game though, right? non- that's the yeah. whole point and it yeah. threw me off in the beginning because one of the first ones in the london area is uh, how do i get the ladder from the painting guy and I'm sitting there thinking, <laughs> painting yeah. guy, ladder? I mean, <laughs> I haven't found that room yet. At that point, I tried to, I think it had become fairly obvious that there's there's a spot where you want to try and go, I think it's east or west, across a piece of grass. And there's a sign on the grass that says, um, 
you keep off the grass. the grass. So every yeah. time you walk on the grass, you get kind of magically taken back off the grass. So from my own kind of adventure game logic and also looking at the first pit of this Invisiclu, I had dis- decided that you would either have to destroy the sign or cover the sign up or do something to sabotage it so oh, that you couldn't see the keep off the grass. I mean, that sounds incredibly Monkey Island to me, right? Like, you <laughs> know, remove in, this, do not enter sign, and you can just go in. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the-, the right answer is also fairly Monkey Island. So it's not <laughs> well, yeah, like you're absolutely. On the like one hundred percent. You were missing if you were looking at the yeah looking at the the the, the invisiclues and thinking oh I haven't found that yet or the, so you're using the invisiclues wrong there aren't you you're you're abusing the invisiclues yes yeah I guess so because mm. I then spent ten minutes going back around the map that I'd spent yeah. an hour drawing out that I was fairly confident was you know solid that there wasn't a room hidden off to the southwest of some area that I I just not not put in the the right direction or thing. I went back around and tried to find this bloody painter guy in his ladder and then yeah. eventually got sick of it and looked at the next Invisiclu and the next one says, ah, well, actually, there isn't a painter, so, you know, <laughs> get off it. So although there were some solutions printed in Games Mags at the time, generally what they would do with adventure games, if they had a, an adventure game section like the White Wizard, I think it was in Zap 64, they would have clues themselves. So it wouldn't just be like, uh, the solution the, in the in the regular you know arcadey part of the magazine they'd have entire maps and maybe walkthroughs but with the adventure games they i think they generally didn't print those maybe there were some specific publications maybe jesse knows about but um for those who don't know what how did one access the invisiclues at the absence of being able to go on the internet and download the entire you, you paid ten dollars for a book and they made a lot of money off these <laughs> sure. they sold very well some some sold better than the games themselves because of piracy and uh yeah they were invisible ink books that would come with an invisible ink you know a yellow right. pen uh and then you would rub it on the you know that you'd, you'd have a question like how do i get the the mug and there'd be five blanks under that and the, you know the first blank would be some vague hint you know, and then if that wasn't enough, the second one is getting a little more specific. And by the fifth one, it's basically a walkthrough saying, yeah. do blah, blah, blah. Either that um, or the fifth one says, ah, made you look, there isn't a mug. Right. <laughs> one yeah. or the other. And they would throw those in. That was a, a common in, in uh, when they would also have like the uh, D&D games and uh, Wasteland had paragraph books you know, of like, because, you know, you couldn't fit all the text in the game, so you'd go to some area and be like, look at paragraph 138. Uh, those would always have like a third of their paragraphs are totally fake outs. Uh, this was kind of like a, a, a long tradition in this kind of, uh, yeah, you've, you've got to throw in all these red herrings and fake things, partly so that when the player looks at the invisible ink book, there's still some mystery because even like if, you know, seeing the questions themselves kind of tells you what you're trying to do in the game. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, they're kind of like, most of them, I think were written by the same people who made the games themselves. Yeah. Uh, like the Steve Moretzky ones are very funny in the way that his games are often funny. And, um, and yeah, I, they really are the reason why I felt comfortable, uh, you know, pressing to, for, yeah, we, we can do this. It'll be fun. I promise. <laughs> because I think they titrate the games in ways that are really valuable. Mm. Three last, uh, bill of rights rules. 15 to have a good reason why something is impossible. Does it pass that one? Within the game logic of the game, <laughs> perhaps? I, mean, I don't s- recall 
being told no and thinking like, well, why not? Why? Yeah. yeah. No, there's some slightly I... daft things about it. For example, if you've got the coconut and you um you break the coconut with the axe, mm. uh, it only bleeds milk or whatever for a couple of spaces and. It, the game doesn't really, I thought, do a fantastic job of um, of telling you that. At one point, I mm. dumped the entire coconut into the potion. After I'd broken it with the axe, I just chucked the whole thing in. And I right. assumed that I was fine with that until I chucked the other items in half an hour later and nothing happened. And I realised that clearly <laughs> just dumping the whole coconut, milk Jesus or not, Christ. into it does not count. I did, I did enjoy the fact that it, it itself makes the point as well. It's like, well, technically, it's not the stuff in a coconut isn't actually milk, but <laughs> it's coconut water, yeah. yeah. Sixteen. This is a good one. Not to need to be American. So, as in, not only just simple spellings and whatever in the parser. I think it does actually require mostly Americanized spellings. I did have to. There was something I typed with a Z rather than an S, anyway. But that's <laughs> fine. I can live with that. It's an American game. But obviously, in terms of what would be default basic. US person knowledge compared to somebody playing who might be playing an Infocom game somewhere else in the world. And finally, to know how the game is getting on, which I assume means are you making progress? Yeah, mm. I think. If that's again, case... it's that thing of like, yeah, the, the score is, is certainly a, a huge help with this. Yeah. But, uh, but again, it's that, yeah, that thing of if you can miss an item six hours ago and not realize. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, mixed. So- is it possible yeah. to complete the game and not have a score of 100? Or do you have to do all of the things that give you points? Yeah, I was wondering that end? myself. I'm not sure, yeah. I think in this case, you kind of have to have 100. There's definitely other Infocom games where you can win with them. His previous game, Wishbringer, the reason it was for uh, kids is because there's two ways to solve the major puzzles. One, by making a wish with the Wishbringer, ah, where you get a lower score. Sweet. And then the like clever logic way that I, I've played about half that game and I use the wish every time. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Too right. <laughs> Back to Andrew Plotkin from the Game Shelf, who says, it's generally agreed that the plot logic of the ending doesn't really hold together. In fact, my teenage self was moved to write a letter of complaint to Infocom. (laughs) I received a gracious response. I think it was written by Moriarty himself, which basically said the game ends the way we felt it had to end, which is unarguable. (laughs) Uh, I took these couple of comments from YouTube because understandably we don't have a ton of community correspondence for this show and I thought these were interesting. So... Gideon Calver Jarvis, possibly a YouTube user. Don't know if one is supposed to really use comments like this uh, unsolicited, but they're on YouTube. (laughs) So this game puts me in two minds. The first recognizes a poignant, thought provoking and ultimately melancholy exploration of the inevitability of fate and our place in its infinite manifolds. A much larger and vastly more practical part of me, however, recognizes that this entire exercise is a complete waste of time since we ultimately accomplish nothing except to close a time loop ad infinitum. Worse than a waste, as we actually cause ultimately more harm than good, as evidenced by our ruthless slaying of skinks, and just as ruthless use of lemmings as snake bait. (laughs) We don't even get to help out that old lady at the beginning and end. Yeah, I did think that I was supposed to give that old lady her umbrella back, and Well, you do, don't you? Yeah, sort of. (laughs) she's a wee child but right it does feel she gives up easily for an umbrella she's had for the last 
40, 50 it, Yeah, good point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and the other YouTube comment that I wanted to mention that, that uh, I, I skipped past earlier was just, and this was just in terms of talking about the genre of the game and being aware that some people are just not familiar with this because they weren't around or they, you know, they haven't just, because they're not really talked about as much in, in the same way anymore, despite the popularity of visual novels and point and clicks. Uh, BH on YouTube last year, as recently as that, saying uh, on this playthrough, dang, is this game really just a bunch of command line interfacing? Uh, yes. And the other YouTube comment I picked out was from one Jim Moskovitz, who says, a friend and I just replayed Trinity after decades. And this is in response to the previous comment. You may have missed the part where you're informed at the end that all your work led to making nuclear bombs much less powerful. Without your efforts, nuclear explosions would have been hundreds of times stronger and the very first test would have eliminated the entire state of New Mexico, presumably also triggering, triggering quite a nuclear winter. When you return to the beginning, physics is different now, such that nukes can only take out a city. Yes, it's dark to say that our world is the happy ending one, but Infocom never shied away from dark games. So yeah, the idea is that your existence keeps us in the reality that we actually, in which we actually live, with nukes being only city destroyers rather than state-sized destroyers. But see, that, of course, that makes yeah. <laughs> That, yeah, see, that makes even less sense to me than the Kinda. stuff we discussed previously. <laughs> yeah. How does sort of jeopardize, you know, temporarily jeopardizing one experiment make them all worse? Maybe um, they were. Maybe there was a certain. I'm I'm extrapolating here, but conjecture. Maybe they were. There was a certain set of minds at work on a certain piece of data that very day that. Mm you know, talking about the butterfly effect or whatever, that those thoughts never aligned again in the same way to make that particular thing happen. I don't yeah. know. That's not it's, really... It's a stretch. That's not how I read it. I mean, I just kind of assumed that it was a situation where I don't know how it work, this works for the rest of the world, but by your actions of looping round and round and round in time, you're delaying the inevitable bomb mm. destroying London so mm. at least, although you might just be replaying a section over and over and over, mm. London effectively never gets destroyed from your perspective. Mm. But that also doesn't really make any sense or kind of hold up to multiple <laughs> points of scrutiny. So I don't know. It was it was a fun game because the yeah because the, the stuff story. about the stuff about the New Mexico bomb being more powerful. So I first picked up on that when what was it, it was something i did wrong towards the end and oh that's right so i i cut the wire too early just out of interest yeah um yeah and it mentions you know the lieutenant will come and deal with you and then it sort of says but ultimately he never does because he gets wiped out by the blast along with everything else in new mexico and i was like oh, hang on but why I don't <laughs> um so yeah it's strange um like if if that's all you ultimately end up achieving i would have thought it would be more clear about that but then I don't know. Maybe they realize also. Like, maybe they also realize it doesn't make a huge amount of sense. I don't know. It's weirdly for a, we're talking about a time loop, and I'm just getting massive deja vu. <laughs> <laughs> I, I swear we've had this conversation before, but we definitely haven't ever done a Trinity show before. Maybe maybe Whoa. we had it half an hour ago, and we're just going. I'm around tripping out. Circles. Maybe that's it. But I feel like we had a similar conversation about a different game, maybe where it was like 
if if that was supposed to be the ending, why didn't the game actually tell us? Because <laughs> <laughs> sometimes they're not, yeah, they're not written as as well as or as clearly as we'd like them to be. I guess it's yeah, because you do wonder. I mean, I, th- I think we've all probably written or worked on things, and as you get towards the end, you sort of think, "Hang on a minute, I've how the like, hell." It, yeah, like I've now realised that this doesn't make any sense or I've actually, you know, through writing it, I've convinced myself that I wasn't, I was wrong to begin with. In what, you know, How many um, films and TV shows and books, I'm sure, a few of which I've read, prove that sticking the landing is the toughest part to any fiction? Yeah, yeah absolutely. In most Infocom games, the credits are hidden somewhere. In Trinity, go and see the old woman and... Uh, right at the start if you want and type ask the old woman about trinity to see the complete credits thanks to moby games for that it's still it works i tried it myself yep we've got our one piece of long form correspondence from the community thank you very much to simon sloth for this who says i just finished the game and my main overriding thought was that i both hate the fact that i had to use a guide to finish but also acknowledge there is no way i would ever have completed it without one The solutions were far too complicated, even with the hints, and often I didn't have enough time left or had forgotten an item which made solving the problem impossible. I actually got nearly all the way to the end with a walkthrough, and I was standing in front of some wires with time ticking away and full knowledge of what I had to do, but unfortunately I had forgotten to pick up a knife. (laughs) Biting the wire or sharpening the screwdriver didn't help. So I died and lost a significant amount of progress Uh, and the end of the world. Many adventure games force you to use a specific item to solve an earlier problem, then make it permanent in your inventory, ensuring you have said item for a puzzle later. I was able to load an earlier save state and whiz back to the point I was stuck at in no time, but I can imagine the frustration if that was not the case. My favourite text adventure is Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which along with also being extremely hard, is incredibly amusing and revels in how much it tortured you. It feels like you are constantly trying to outwit Adams himself, with the solutions being delightfully silly. My problem with Trinity is that it's missing the playfulness that I associate with my favourite text adventures, and before using a guide I found the whole experience incredibly obtuse and confusing. I didn't really know what was going on, as by the time I had found the solution, I'd forgotten many key plot points and incidental details which would have heightened the experience. There were extremely clever moments, like returning the umbrella to the young girl, realising this was the crying old lady at the beginning, and that the corpse you raid for the boots and shroud to trick the oarsman were from your own dead body. The playing of the game is about thinking, reading and writing, but strangely, I got more enjoyment thinking, reading and writing about the game than actually playing it. The core narrative and the way it unfolds is fascinating, but without the modern quality of life improvements, playing it in 2021 is a rough ride, says Simon. That's so often the case about uh, the games that we we cover on this show. Sometimes the, the research is more fun than the playing, but um, it's all part <laughs> yeah, of the, the journey. I, I... I can't disagree with any of that, I don't think. Um, I think, yeah, Simon quite rightly points out there is loads of really clever and, and wonderful stuff in this. It's just a shame, like, the the work you have to put in to get to some of it. Yeah. Luckily, there are ways to enjoy it, maybe not as the author intended, but still. Yeah, like, if you, you know, yeah, so obviously after a certain point, I had to just sort of use a walkthrough and... I still had a really good time just reading right. it, which, as you say, absolutely not 
not as intended um but it, it was still enjoyable and i think uh, i mean the walkthrough i found i imagine many of the same it was sort of you know here's exactly what you need to do and for each section it was like and here's also here are some fun things to try out because yeah you know because some of the you know some there's some very good writing in the you know wrong decisions mm. um and, and it's worth sort of taking those paths just to see what happens um but yeah but but equally you know if it, if it's so obtuse that people are just not even gonna mm. engage with it then that's that you know that's just a huge shame um it's inter- like you know simon notes potential you know modern quality of life improvements could someone remake this and could they make it friendlier or would that ruin mm. it i can't like i i don't know like if if it was to be remade i mean you know <laughs> full, full unreal engine treatment or whatever would that <laughs> even work i don't i don't know I was thinking about, I mean, you could hack in a magic backpack without harm, I think. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, but, I mean, right. Could you translate this to like a point and click? Because, mm. again, the verbs would be fine. Could mm-hmm. this be like, a, you know, like the VR mist or whatever? Uh, and I think he describes a really interesting setting. But I, I think the prose is stronger than the setting is yeah. the problem. Yeah. Right. The descriptions are kind of more evocative than the symbolic things that it is describing. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that would be my worry. Yeah. 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 Be an interesting project. I'd like to see someone tackle that anyway. Just, uh, and it yeah, would be, be interesting, interesting to see the, see the attempt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Couple of three word reviews, even thanks to our Twitter followers. Followers at Kana Rince, of course. Cantonar's Ghost says Alice in Winterland. And Blue Weasel Breath says, peak interactive fiction. Good stuff. So I suppose it just remains for us to summarise our feelings on Trinity. I'll begin as I think I probably made the worst attempt at actually beating the game properly and legitimately. (laughs) Uh, But I did enjoy it. And yes, it's been a really interesting show to put together. Uh, as I always do, we've had uh, even more sort of, as as Jesse said, there's there's even more to kind of delve into than with a lot of the games we cover. Uh, just, yeah, whatever it is about these, these visual, uh, not visual, uh, interactive fictions and the people who played them at the time. Uh, it's cultivated some something of a yeah a lasting and, and staying relationship, even if I was just wondering, actually, while we were talking about trying to complete the game and quality of life additions. We know, we all know now that um, because there's data, uh, both of achievements and that developers harvest from people playing their consoles online, that most people don't finish games. I think we all knew that as gamers, a lot of us don't or didn't finish a lot of games, certainly in, in certain periods of time. And Kane and Rince in some ways has been, my answer to that trying to make me make me finish things even through the tough times and when there are distractions i'd be really interested to know what the percentage of people who bought uh, infocom games back in the 80s actually managed to get through any of them legitimately it's fascinating to know as well that there are people like jesse's pal who are still working their way through hitchhiker's guide i think there's a version we should say that uh, you can play this game we haven't really talked about how and you can play it but Obviously, it's uh, it's abandonware, so it's completely free to play. You can play it actually in a browser with uh, through a uh, an, uh, a DOSBox plugin, or you can download it all and play it on whatever emulator you want, and it's all completely legitimate and legal. 
which is cool. Not that we uh, we dissuade people from doing that with uh, certain other old games anyway. Uh, and obviously, yes, you can make it easy for yourself because all those resources are out there. But yes, you are still tied to the the original, the the right way of playing this text adventure, which is typing words in. But actually, in some ways, that feels what I was thinking when thinking about playing a text adventure for the first time in probably 30 years or more since the point and click revolution was ugh, typing. But actually, it turns out that modern controllers, obviously, I've got no problem using a dual sense or whatever. They've got so many buttons and inputs and sticks and twiddly knobs and triggers that actually typing to play a game feels really quite simple and straightforward. <laughs> uh, it's only it's only the, the issues with the parser and and in particular in this case, not so much the parser, which does a fine job, I think, but it is the nature of the puzzles that make this a, a tough ask in 2021. Exactly what we were just talking about. Thankfully, as we say, the Invisi clues and complete walkthroughs are out there but then if you do use those you know you're depriving yourself of the satisfaction of really solving the game but at least as i did you get the enjoyment of seeing that there were really intelligent grown-up and lovely uh beautifully written science fiction interactive games not always science fiction fantasy whatever else other genres uh going all the way back to the early distant dark days of computer gaming. So yes, I don't necessarily recommend that you try to play it, but I do recommend learning about Infocom and Level 9 and Magnetic Scrolls and some of the other adventure creators of the day because there's some real treasure in there. John, mapmaker extraordinaire. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a very difficult game to sit here in 2021 and explicitly tell other people you should go and try this. You need to see how this game goes. Um for multitude of reasons that we've already discussed but that's absolutely not to say that I didn't have a what so I did have a really really good time playing this I thought it was um it's almost to the point of being sort of out of my usual wheelhouse that it was like a real um real sort of spicy breath of fresh air for me to to see something that was so um I want to say, like, it's just the the text was so evocative and flowing that I never didn't enjoy reading exactly what was going on, and I uh, I always had it put it, uh, strongly put into the verbose mode where it gives you the description of every area as you go in, because unless I was yeah. literally just sort of hammering www to to keep <laughs> moving through an area. I, I needed to be reminded of what the areas were and why I was there. And yeah. I thought that was that was a really a really sort of beautiful thing to to read this little bit of text every time. And I mean we've talked a lot about the puzzles being maybe overly obtuse, certainly um obtuse compared to what I would normally be used to playing uh in this day and age. But uh every time that I had to look up um a solution or something, every time I went to the Invisiclues and and just looked up sort of a hint of what I need to do next. Like, what is, what is the deal with this potion? And it gives you a, a fairly uh, brief hint about what to do. Mm. I always enjoyed the, at least the action of, oh, okay, so that's what you need to do here. Like, the point of this is to to get this thing into this area. That's that's kind of interesting, and that's funny in some ways. Right. Um, there's There's definitely a hard point, I think, in the game when you get to the 
Trinity site after going through the sixth mushroom where the invisible wow. clues were not cutting it for me anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you may have already talked about this um, while I was no, no, here. No, that, no, that last segment we didn't really get into, but it is... Yes, uh, it is a it's doozy. It's a hell of a thing. Um, yeah. There are so many ways for you to fail during that last segment. I mean, multiple points of if you didn't do everything perfectly beforehand, you're just automatically going to fail and you'll have to reload a previous save. Then it's on a very strict time limit with a huge, horrible maze-like area that, I mean, I think yeah. I mentioned in the Slack, but I really enjoyed making a map specifically of the London area and of the, uh, I, I've called it through the white door, but I think it's it's known as the Wave area, the hub mm. world. They That's were right. both fantastic. I started making a map of this desert area and it just got too big and too sprawling and too messy for me to continue with it. And that was the point where I'd spent an hour wandering around this desert where I got fed up with it and just thought I need to actually look up what I'm doing here because it just felt like a completely abandoned um, area that I was just lost yeah. in. Um, yeah. And I think they also pull some rather nasty tricks with that where there are some areas that you go a certain direction and then you go back and you're not in the area that you were in before. There's multiple mm. points over to one side <laughs> of the map where you're in these foothills and you can continue going north through the foothills but at any point, if you go east, you just end up back in the, the west area of the tower or something. And some of that really threw me off. So it, it gets, I think it gets beyond the point of being fun. But that's not to say that I still, when I eventually, you know, threw the towel in and just went and looked at a walkthrough for that last area, I still really enjoyed reading the, the story of what was going on and, and figuring out, oh, yeah, well, if I had have just gone southwest twice instead of going in a massive circle, <laughs> that, w that would have been fine. And I'd mapped out all of these other areas. But if I just pushed a little bit harder, but it's so easy to say something like that with hindsight. But right. Yeah, it, I mean, it annoyed me, but it never was a point where I thought, oh, this is stupid. This game is unfair or it's, it's um, you know, it's, it's really uh, riled me up too much. So I need... <laughs> Like I say, it's it's impossible really to to give it a very strong. You must go and play this to everybody, but it's a really interesting. Um, I, I'm worried that this is going to sound really dismissive, um, but it's I find it to be a very interesting kind of artifact of a a time in sort of video gaming history that we've potentially moved on from now. And that's not to say that I'm sure no, that I there. Think that's fair. Well, I think there's still probably a lot of love for this. There are, maybe there are still text adventures being made. I know that there are lots of people who are my age, a little bit older than me, who are absolutely obsessed with these kind of text adventures and um, other sort of the LucasArts style adventure games from a few years later, the point and clicks. There's still a little love for these things in the, in the kind of the general um, community around. So yeah, I just think it's a fascinating thing to to have taken a look at and maybe because it's out of my comfort zone um is why it got to me so much but i think it's also just a beautifully created and and really beautifully written game so i i loved it thanks for taking it on john yeah, for no us. problem <laughs> yeah and sean how about you um i mean yeah obviously echoing what leon and john have said it's hard to recommend like playing it um and yet, I am glad I did, and I'm really glad we've we've had this. I mean, you know, this discussion. Like, I I came to this recording thinking, oh, thank God, Jesse's going to have loads to say, 
because I <laughs> like I was feeling pretty lost by the time I'd finished it. But actually, um, you know, the the experience of you know getting through it, if not technically playing it properly, um, and then sort of getting to unpack it with with you guys has been really interesting. Um, and I'm I'm really glad we've done it. It is a, like a real shame, like as John was saying, that the way that the final section seems determined to trip you up because when you do play through that final section properly um and you know and get everything right the, the sort of narrative and gameplay device of the radio is incredible i thought that was so smart like and, mm. and i can't think of another game that's done something similar in that you're you know you've got this radio with you and it and it's on the entire time and you're listening into you know all the chatter about all the uh you know all, all these sort of different teams and stuff all communicating about this this bomb test and as you you know you're going about your business and they're sort of saying stuff and you think and every so often they're sort of handily giving you an update on how much time you've got left but then also there are bits where you do stuff and they react to it and like it's wonderfully done um that's such a smart idea um and the and the way that sort of you know builds the tension as you go is just incredible but again if you're playing it properly and you're just like dying every two minutes and having to try you know go back try different things and then and as we've discussed, maybe it'll turn out you there's something you missed six hours ago. You're stuffed. Um, that, like that stuff just gets in the way of how good the narrative can be at times, um, which is a shame. And, and yeah, I'd be interested to see if someone could do a modern take on this because I think obviously how weird the whole thing is is a, is a really key part of it. Um, but also, yeah, that there are times where it's, too weird and too unfair and it sort of gets in its own way um in that sense but yeah i mean overall um like just yeah just really glad i've experienced it and got some idea of um you know some of the things that it was doing back in the mid 80s that mm. i described to you know much later games like i mentioned the professor layton thing or you yeah. know the idea of having to you know engage with something or pick up an item very early on that seems you know, at the time, sort of totally superfluous, and then later turns out to be absolutely key. I mean, we've seen that in you know Planescape Torment, as um, you know Disco Elysium has elements of that as well. Um, but then but they manage to do it in ways that it's like you don't completely ruin the game for yourself if you miss those things. They're just cool um, <laughs> things to to have picked up on. Um, so yeah, I've, like you can have a good time just following a walkthrough, I think, um, and just reading it. Obviously, that's not how it's intended. But if you're listening to this and thinking, "Oh, well, I'm never going to play it," like, do at least consider just like using a walkthrough to get through it, because yeah, there's just some great writing and some really fascinating ideas in there. Brilliant, thanks, Sean. And we have to conclude with he who picked this game for Volume Ten, Jesse. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't know if I'd recommend this. here's what it comes down to right i picked this one because it is by the consensus of the people who play these games considered one of the best ones and of those i think it's the most representative in in the double-edged sword way of it is got these zorky kind of puzzles uh as opposed to a lot of the other uh most renowned ones are kind of weird in some like a mind forever voyaging is more like a walking simulator plundered hearts is more of a, a pure narrative uh you know suspended is kind of almost like a pandemic style board game mixed with the text adventure right i want to i want hitchhikers is like a weird meta parody like i want to make sure to pick one that i felt like was interesting but representative because this is probably the only 
you know, parser-based text adventure we're going to do for a while. Um, and so I think anyone who listens to this, if this one sounds interesting, uh, and I think, you know, my opinion is it's a very good game. It is, I, I think I may be undersell some of the symbolic resonance because I do think there is a lot of that there. I think that when you go to the locations of the different bombs and you encounter, like, you know, you meet the, the very friendly dolphin who gets you the coconut and you just <laughs> have to leave and you know that dolphin is going to be incinerated uh in a matter of seconds and like there's a weird amount of animal cruelty in fact that <laughs> yeah. does feel symbolically resonant yeah. with mm. you know what the game is trying to make you feel and does do that successfully in the classic you know whatever spec opsy like i felt very bad killing that little lizard uh which was like maybe 10 lines of description right mm. uh, but yeah squirming around in my pocket <laughs> too much uh, description for that it's been, been your companion you know, for a long time right. up to that point. And I, I think he's effectively, even if I think a lot of it is a little generic in a way that as a true believer in Infocom, he thought would be fine. And if you were coming to this again from playing previous Infocom games, I think would, would be like as those sorts of puzzles go, these are pretty good. Like they're kind of hard. But I think if it's like crossword puzzles, if you've done five of these games before, yeah. a lot of that logic is just going to come naturally to you. Fair. Yeah. Um, and I did find like, right, we're not playing this. We're not going to take 30 years. Right. And I do. But I do think um, you can get some of that with the Invisiclues. And there were definitely moments where like I would just look at the very first like uh, in Hiroshima when you have to go back to the white door that's floating or, uh, you know, thousands of feet in the air. The only Invisiclue I looked up was like, how do you get back? And it says, uh, like, you need to fly back up to the door. And that's it. <laughs> and somehow sitting on that for a day made me think, oh, if I give the piece of paper to the little girl, <laughs> she'll fold it into an origami bird and something magical will happen with that bird. Wow. Uh, and I'll go back up the door. <laughs> and like when that actually happened, I was like, well, goddamn. Uh, and the same with the bubble action. Like I, I got a little hint from the Invisiclues, but I was like, okay, how do I get air around me? Well, the bubble will freeze, right? And it happened, and I was just delighted that this insane cartoon logic actually paid mm. off. <laughs> um, and I think if you sit with one of these games for weeks or months, as was you know, and just kind of pick at it and like let yourself ruminate on it, uh, that can be a very pleasurable experience. But I think that, again, thanks to the Invisiclues, like the reason I'd recommend Infocom over maybe other text adventure companies is it's, you know, it's the home team for me, but more it is specifically there are these resources that Professor Layton style, you can kind of titrate and find that middle path between just doing a walkthrough and getting stuck on stuff. And I think if you look at it that way, they had 35 games, and I about 30 of them I'd recommend to someone. Mm. Like, there's a horror game that's, like, a Lovecraft game that's pretty cool. You know, there's Hollywood Hijinks, which is set in, like, 40s oh, film yeah. land oh, and is goofy and funny. Yeah. Uh, there's Leather Goddesses. Like, I don't recommend this one. I recommend look at the Infocom stuff if you're interested and find the one that sounds the most fun to you, as long as it's not Zork. Uh, if you want to do those, do the Enchanter series instead, because it's basically Zork 4, 5, and 6, and they're way better. Uh, but yeah, and and I do think there is something unique about typing things into a computer and having words come back to you that is not replicatable by any other form of computer game. Mm. And I do think it's a specific mm. experience that's that's worth having at least once. 
uh, and uh, maybe play AI Dungeon along with this to get the modern version, I guess. Mm, yeah. I also wanted to call out uh, Brian Moriarty, and I know this was written 35 years ago, for the uh, buying into the Disney myth that lemmings throw themselves over cliffs en masse. <laughs> Uh, which was, I think it was in some 50s film that Disney made where they probably cruelly actually throw through a load of lemmings uh, over a waterfall. And uh, and that actually became kind of common knowledge folklore, like the Mandela effect. Lemmings don't <laughs> do that. Why would they? You're crazy. Well, anyway. Although, funnily enough, speaking of lemmings, one of the things that came to me during this was the um, the realisation that those creatures were lemmings followed yep. not very much later by going through that door where uh, you spawn in midair and remembering that in Lemmings, they open their little umbrellas to float to the ground. <laughs> and I opened the umbrella and it worked. So somehow, point. although that's completely unrelated, and the original Lemmings is probably years after this game. Only four? Was, that only four years, happened. I think. Okay. Five? Yeah, it could have been an influence on Dave Jones. Who knows, as well as Jonathan Blow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, so it just remains for me, Leon, to thank Jesse, John, and Sean, who can be found at? Uh, TCGS Co. on Twitter or TCGS.co in your favourite web browser of choice, I guess. Cool. They do a podcast and stuff on video as well. Yeah. Also, thank Editor Jay, as well as our correspondents and the random people whose ramblings I picked off the internet. <laughs> Plus, of course, you for listening. And to tell you that next time in issue 468, more smart science fiction with Disco Elysium.